Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 533 with my guest, cult expert, Dr. Yanya Lalich. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Uh... I'm not sure if this is my podcast. I, you know, I've been doing the show for 10 years, and I think I might accidentally be hosting the wrong podcast. And I don't really know how to back out of this, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna continue hosting this podcast. Maybe that's not even my name. Can you tell that I'm bored with the uh, the boilerplate notes of introducing the episode? Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place where we talk about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. I'm not an expert. Uh, don't uh, <laughs> don't trust me. Basically, that's what I'm saying. Don't sue me. I'm a nut job. Don't sue me. That's really that's what I should boil it down to. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Welcome to the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I'm a nut job. Take everything with a grain of salt. I don't want to be sued. Uh, somebody emailed me and uh, they said that last week's episode, uh, I mentioned two things. I mentioned that I had COVID uh, during the interview with Matt Haig, and I also mentioned going out to a restaurant with my girlfriend. The episode with Matt had been recorded about a month ago, so um, that I, I did not have COVID. Uh, COVID when I went to a restaurant. So, but if I did, you know what? Go fuck yourself. If I want to take people down, isn't that my prerogative? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Agent Zero. And he asks, What would you advise someone experiencing anxiety about moving out for the first time from their parents' house? Uh, that's a great question. And I think. You know, I think every person obviously is different. It depends on what the relationship is with the parents, what kind of experience you have uh, with um, being by yourself, 
uh, obviously not living by yourself because you've never done that before, but, um, you know, do you have a support group of, of friends? Do you have a support group? Um, do you open up about your feelings? I think those are all important things to, to factor in. But the, I, I think one of the most important things is put your crystal ball away. Stop trying to predict how the universe is going to unfold. Our crystal ball is our worst enemy. Oh, I should say mine is. Uh, how I predict things is never or almost never how things work out. And I'm usually okay on the other side. Uh, so look at it as uh, a new chapter of your life. And uh, there are going to be some great things about you living by yourself. And the things that you're probably stressed about, um, you'll look back a year from now and you'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe I was stressed out about that. So that's my two cents. I hope that helps. And don't sue me. We are sponsored today, as always, by the online therapy provider, betterhelp.com. Uh, go check it out. Go to uh, betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free counseling a week of free counseling to see if that's your thing. And uh, you need to be over 18. If you're not 18, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com and you can get started on uh, filling out the, the forms to get the ball rolling on that because it does require parental consent if you're uh, you know between 13 and 17. But after the consent uh, has been filled out and all the paperwork, your session's between you and your therapist are private. So, which I think is awesome because a lot of kids resist going to therapy because they're afraid that the the problems they're having with their parents, uh, the things they say are going to get back to their parents. And you don't have to worry about that with betterhelp.com. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Matt. And he writes, uh, and Matt is... Uh, a trans woman and uh i'm sorry he matt is a trans male jesus what am i 900 years old and uh matt writes i was sitting across from a man at a kitchen table as i was trying to draw quietly he ranted on and on about how we should be allowed to hit kids again and how much he wanted to strangle the children in his neighborhood as someone who was belted and smacked at home and on occasion at school by the small country town teachers who weren't, weren't scared of parental backlash, this angered me, but I kept my mouth shut. He continued talking and told me how he got hit all the damn time and he turned out fine. I had to bite my cheek to keep from laughing and reminding him that we were both in the psych ward. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. 
I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I am here with Dr. Yanya Lalich, uh, who have, I've, I've wanted to interview you for a while. I watch pretty much every documentary that comes out about cults, and I began see, seeing you pop up time and time again and so interested in the things that you had to say. So I'm really glad that we are able to make this happen. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I know it took us a while to get this scheduled. <laughs> uh, where would be a good place to, uh, to, to start talking about? You're a researcher, you're an author, you're an educator, you specialize in uh, talking about cults and extremist groups. Um, let's, let's start with, if, if you're comfortable talking about your own personal experience in a, uh, would you call it a cult or a cult-like experience? I would call it a cult for sure. Okay. Can, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so I, I had just moved to San Francisco after living, uh, on a Spanish Island for four years, uh, during my hippie days. And I got to San Francisco. I was 30 years old. Uh, I had already been to college and all of that. And, um, you know, I was a I was a progressive thinker. And so I was new in town. I was meeting new people. And this was the mid 70s. So it was right at the end of the um, Vietnam War. And a lot of people on the left were kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And I met a friend of of my roommate at the time, and we would have these we'd run into each other on the street and have discussions. And she invited me to a study group, which were, was very common in those days. Um, you know, numbers of people would get together and read different things. So anyway, I was I thought that was a great idea. I'd meet new people and I always loved to read and have always had kind of an intellectual bent. Um, and and she said right away, she said, well, don't tell anybody. And I thought, well, don't tell anybody. It's just a study group. You know? And she said, well, you know, we <clears throat> we don't want we don't want it to get around too much. And we just want to invite the people we want to invite. Of course, the study group was a front for a political organization that behind it. But I didn't know that at the time. And they didn't say that. So I joined the study group and there were maybe 12 of us in the group and I think probably six of the people were already in this background organization and the rest of us were obviously potential recruits. And so we read various leftist literature, you know, Marx and Lenin and Chairman Mao and that kind of stuff. And, and different ones of us would be asked to lead discussions and, and they always praised me and said how wonderful I did. And then after a few weeks, um, this, this woman asked to meet with me again. And so we, uh, we met again at my place and she said, well, you know, what, what are you learning in the study group? And I said, well, you know, I'm learning that um, in order to really make social change, you have to have a, a vanguard 
party, um, disciplined party. And, and of course, this is what all the reading was leading us to. And this is often what cults do. It should sort of direct you to where they want you to go. And so she said, well, what, what if we told you we have an organization like that? And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know? So um, so she said, would you like to join? And I said, yeah, it sounds interesting. So, of course, then they do the bait and switch. You know, they tantalize you and then they pull it back. So she said, well, here, fill out this application and then, you know, we'll let you know. Of course, the application asked me everything about my life, my family, my bank accounts, my passport number, you know, everything. All to be used against you at a later exactly. time. So they had everything about me. And and of course, I was accepted into the group, which um, which then began 10 years of absolutely um, strict living. I mean, we were supposed to be transforming ourselves into these like steeled cadre fighters for the revolution. And, you know, we had to take on new names and no one was supposed to know anyone else's real name. And we, I was eventually encouraged to move in with other members. And uh, so, I, you know, we didn't all live together altogether, but people lived in houses with other members. So everybody was watching each other all the time and reporting on each other. And, and um, <clears throat> I got moved very quickly up the ranks and was um, in, in the inner circle and had a lot of leadership positions and, and it was a very uh, stark existence. I mean, we worked 18, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, month after month, year after year. Um, we did some, you know, I have to say we did some good political work, but most of the time we sat around in circles and criticized somebody uh, for something they had done or supposedly had done. <clears throat> And all of this was, of course, to rid us of our bourgeois attitudes or, you know. So um, it was pretty grim. And um, I mean, there's a a lot of things that happened that led me to want to leave. And um, after a pretty awful incident that had to do with the death of my mother, I, I was completely disenchanted, disillusioned. I wanted to get out. I could not figure out how to leave. I mean, I, I, I had no money. I had nowhere to go. I had no friends outside the organization. I, both my parents had died, I, you know. Um, and so I spent about four or five years just in misery. I would, every day I would get in my car and I would wish that I would be killed in a car accident because it was the only way I could see to get out. And eventually... Uh, which is very unusual. We actually, um, the group imploded because at one point when the leader was away, we got together and we told, those of us in leadership told the members what was really going on behind the scenes, you know, that she was an alcoholic and she didn't do any of the writing that was in her name. Others of us were doing it, et cetera, et cetera. And it took days to convince everybody that we were telling the truth and then at some point we took a vote and we voted unanimously to expel her and to dissolve the organization. And so in the end, we all got out. And at that point, I'd say there were about 125 full-time members. Um, and, and so we all helped each other with resumes and trying to find work and being references for each other and, and uh, yeah, so I was about 
I was not quite 41 years old at that point, And I felt like I was 15 years old. <laughs> I mean, I had just, I was a mess. What had been the means by which they, you were told the change was going to occur? Was it going to be through violence? Was it through, you know, promoting um, a, a candidate? Well, you know, we we did run candidates. Um, we actually took over the Peace and Freedom Party, which was a third party here in California at the time. And we, um, I mean, ultimately, we believed in a communist revolution and, you know, we assumed it would be violent. Um, after a time, we didn't believe that would happen in our lifetime we understood ourselves to be martyrs for the cause. You know, we were supposedly educating the working class and hopefully, you know, we believe that one day in alliance with other organizations, you know, we would overthrow the government, but it, that would happen well after our time was sort of how we saw it. Do you still want to see a communist revolution overthrow? No. Okay. No. <laughs> well, good, because that keeps us from going down a whole other path. I, w I would like to see some socialism, but uh, yes, yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm a, I would say I'm a democratic socialist. Um, I certainly believe in social equality, and I think there's room for a lot of change in our country, uh, especially right now. But no, I, you know, one of the things I did when I got out, because I had to try to understand what had happened to me. And um it, it took a while to even see that it really was a cult because at that time, most of the materials available about cults was about religious cults. And so I'm like, well, you know, maybe we weren't really a cult. So I started making lists and charts and comparisons. And, and a lot of what I did also, I didn't want to, I knew that I, I didn't know what I believed in at that point, but I knew that I didn't want to become like a right wing fanatic, you know, in, in response to what had happened. Right. So I read a lot of the um, literature by the communist dissidents um, in, in Yugoslavia and other countries. And, and, and I really did this like detailed analysis of Marx and Marx's writings. And um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I, I eventually figured out what, who, who I was and what I wanted to believe in, but that took time. What would differentiate a religious organization that's problematic from a religious cult? Well, the, the way I see it is what I sometimes call a healthy religion. Um, and, and even healthy religions can have problems. But for me, a, a healthy religion is one where you're worshiping some type of higher principle, uh, you know, whether that's uh, Allah or God or Buddha or a tree or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but you're not expected to worship and be completely controlled by this sort of living person who's standing in front of you on Saturdays or Sundays or whatever it is. Um, and, and a healthy religion will have checks and balances. And I know that's dicey because if we everybody's like oh well what about the catholic church and all the sexual abuse well eventually there were some there's some accountability and it's taking time but um i don't consider i don't consider the catholic religion a cult um i'm sure there are some churches that are perhaps more that way uh, because it is such a kind of disciplined um religion 
Um, I also think that a healthy religion is is going to is going to more than likely give you sort of um, ideals to live by, um, but they're not going to be there checking up on you every day to see that you're doing them right. right. So, uh, for example, the Catholics will say don't use birth control, but they're not coming into your bedroom and actually looking to see if you're using birth control. Whereas in a, in a cult, a cultic religion or any other kind of cult, um, you will not have checks and balances. There's no accountability. There's no possibility of challenging the leader. And there are all kinds of mechanisms of control to, uh, to keep you doing what you're supposed to be doing and methods of influence like peer pressure, um, as I was saying earlier, like people reporting on each other that, that again, uh, keep you towing the line. Uh, so I think uh, one, of the, one of the aspects that I have been concerned about about religious organizations um, has been the rapid growth of non-denominational churches, because the fact that they're non-denominational means that they don't belong to any other larger organization where there can be lines of accountability. Um, and so when you have all these small churches popping up all over in somebody's living room or a street corner or wherever, um, and often, I mean, that is, that is really good breeding ground for a cult to develop because if the pastor sees how much power he has and nobody's checking him on it, him or her, um, people usually can't handle that kind of power. And so that's where things can start to go wrong. So it, it, it's conceivable that somebody could start a religion without the intent of domination and power and control, but they become addicted to it or something inside them is revealed. Right. Even surprising themselves. Possibly, yes, that could happen. It's probably difficult to find a cult leader who would come clean uh, after the fact about something, right? Right, <laughs> right. I mean, most cult leaders are 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 narcissists. They're power hungry. Um, they they generally can see what they get away with, so they keep pushing the envelope. Um, things often, you know, the longer the group exists, things can tend to get more and more extreme. And um, yeah, and most cult leaders, I mean, I can't think of any who might, well, I, I think there was one example of a, uh, a yoga cult where the leader did step down and say, I I'm losing it, you know, but yeah. I, that's a very rare occurrence. <clears throat> it seems like there's a lot of similarities um, between psychopathy and the leadership in, yes. in cults. What are the similarities and what are the differences? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, m most, most of the cult leaders that, that we're aware of or that ha have been studied over the years um, definitely have shown psychopathic or sociopathic, whichever term you want to use, uh, tendencies. And um, you know, they, they, they tend not to have empathy. They, um, they search for ways to, to, to get excited. You know, they, they uh, can't sit still very long in that sense. They usually have some kind of proclivities that may have to do with sex or money or maybe both. And so there's often those kinds of abuses in the group. Um, you know, they're, 
it's all about them and they tend to easily hurt people and and not recognize what's wrong with that and um and don't take criticism uh, so i think you know i in one of my books in take back your life we actually go down the checklist of uh, i think it's the 15 characteristics of a psychopath and show how each one of them uh you know, has been or can be exemplified in various cult leaders. Um, I think we use David Koresh as the example. I can't remember. But when you go down that list, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that sounds familiar. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, we rarely get to do any kind of psychological testing of cult leaders. So, you know, um, whether anyone can truly make that diagnosis, but I think I think there's a lot of evidence of it. What would... Uh... What would be the difference between uh, a narcissist and uh, a psychopath? Uh, psychopaths are generally always narcissists, but a narcissist isn't generally or necessarily a psychopath. Right, right. So I think, you know, I think, again, it depends on the derangement of the particular leader, whether he's going to have those psychopathic tendencies Um you know, if we take... And I mean just in general, not necessarily inside of a cult. Oh, yeah, just in general, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I had a brother. Uh, he died recently, but I, I always felt my brother was a narcissist, but he wasn't a psychopath, <laughs> you know. Right. I mean, he, 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 it was all about him, and he was always the center of attention, and uh, he could drive you crazy, but but he wasn't... Um, I mean, he had a few sort of violent tendencies, um, not horribly so, but um, but I but I think that was just kind of male aggression. It wasn't psychopathic. Uh, so so yeah, I think there can be plenty of narcissists who who don't don't exhibit that and don't exhibit psychopathic tendencies, characteristics. Uh, I, I've read a couple of books on psychopathy and a couple of things that stuck with me uh, about the typical psychopath is it, it says that they have a shallow affect. Um, mm. What do they mean by that? Well, I mean, the way I would understand that in, in, in thinking about cult leaders is um, <clears throat> or I guess even psychopaths in general, I, I think what, what they mean by that is that they have, they, they have a facade of who they, who they, how they want to present themselves. Um, and that not, that may not be who they really are. And, um, you know, our, our affect is how we present ourselves to people and how we react to things. And, psychopaths, at least in my understanding, um, will react very strongly to things that, you know, bother them, like they're, they're known to go into rages or things like that. Um, yet they can have no affect when they're torturing someone, for example, right? So I think that's, that's how I understand that. So does that it, make sense to you? Yeah, you, it it, it does, and that's what I thought it, it probably was that their their mm -hmm. display of emotions outside of anger tend to be um, a bit robotic. Mm -hmm. Right, right. 
and me- and meant to serve a purpose probably right uh, <laughs> the other thing i i gleaned from it was that there is a deep deep emptiness in them and that their need to feel because they they don't experience empathy and connection the way a, an average person does that they need to create a chessboard uh, of, of their life and to get a, a sense of control to feel any kind of satisfaction. Is that yes, accurate? I, I, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that's, you know, that's what they get off on, so to speak, is right. having that control, um, being praised, being loved. Um, Getting over on someone. Yeah. Being, you know, seeing that they're, they're the top dog, they're winning. Um, you know, if, if, I don't know if we want to go there, but if we take, uh, Trump, for example, uh, who I think fits both definitions, um, of narcissist and psychopath. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's probably not the, you know, the serial killer type of psychopath, but the fact that he, uh, had no, had no feelings about even, for example, when COVID started in our country, uh, that he could be so removed from, from genuine emotions of people. Um, and then he would have these rallies, right. Where he could have thousands of people loving him and praising him and shouting out his slogans. I mean, you could see where he thrived on that kind of thing. Um, I swear to God, in the four years he was in office, I don't think I ever saw the man smile. You know, if you think outside outside of him getting love and adoration. Yeah, yeah. Um, But like if you'd see him, you know, walking out of the, the Air Force One or being somewhere or, you know, he he never smiled. He never smiled. I don't think I ever heard him laugh. I mean, he he was a very cold, cruel person. Penn Gillette was uh, a contestant on uh, his his reality show, and he was talking about how he was kind of amused and fascinated by Trump and wasn't necessarily reeled in by him, but found something um sickly charming about about him and and he said in the entire time that he was in his presence which was months he never heard him make a joke and and his uh son don jr said to penn towards the end you're the only person i've ever met who doesn't hate my father wow (laughs) there you have it (laughs) The Nexium cult, there's a couple of documentaries, um, and I believe you were a guest on at least one of them, correct? Introduced, yes. And, yeah. and I, I, I suspect I'll be in season two of The Vow, but you know, I don't know for sure. I did a lot of filming with them. Uh, talk about Keith Raniere. Well, there you go. Talk about a, a sadistic narcissist. Um, I mean, Keith Raniere was a con artist from the get-go. I mean, he had, he had other multi-level marketing type scams, you know, before Nexium. Um, he was, you know, obviously completely 
in love with himself and probably incapable of ever loving anyone else. Um, I, I actually, I don't think, I don't think he could have created Nexium uh, without Nancy Salzman, uh, who was, you know, kind of his second in command for decades um, or years, at least. I mean, he, I, she had the real, I think, um, psychological manipulative skills that were needed to set the whole thing up. And, and um, being a licensed psychologist gave him right. the stamp of validity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So Keith was, um, you know, he's obviously a very troubled individual. Um, there's stories about his childhood, who knows what to believe. Um, but apparently he always exhibited the sort of narcissistic behavior and even the blackmailing behavior. I don't know if you just saw the Dr. Oz episode uh, that I was on this week or last week. Um, one of the segments was about Keith Raniere and Frank Parlato was talking about <clears throat> the research that he's done into his childhood. And, um, you know, apparently his parents always said he was a genius. And so you know, he had this idea from a little boy on that he was this special person. And I don't, you know, and then there's stories about him and his mother, which who knows how true any of that is. But it seems that a lot of what his, um, a lot of what he recreated in Nexium and in DOS had to do with the fact that, you know, some, some girl when they were young rejected him and, you know, that that I think sort of released his misogyny and. Um, yeah, and he I mean, he did create, I, I'd say, one of the more horrific groups uh, that that I've known of over the years. Um, the cruelty was astounding. My understanding of, of psychopathy uh, and is this still the case, is that it is believed to be more genetic than environmental or is it believed to be a combination of the two or everybody's just kind of scratching their head? I'm of the mind that it is a sort of biological disorder. I think, I think there's something wrong with their brains and they just aren't like the rest of us. Um, although within that, I think also that the expression of the psychopathy, I think, gets triggered by some external factor, you know, and, and then that's what sets it off and, and sort of brings it to fruition, so to speak, or gets people to really act out on it. Um, Which is also the case with other mental disorders. For instance, schizophrenia, there was mm -hmm. that study where they were lucky enough to have uh, to find twins who were raised in separate households and the one in the deprived household, uh, their schizophrenia, uh, emerged, whereas in the other one, there was no signs of schizophrenia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I do believe it's inborn. And, and I believe that's why they, I don't think they can ever change. Uh, you know, you can probably do decades of therapy and or whatever. And, and I, I don't, I don't think they can change. Are all serial killers psychopaths? I don't know. I haven't studied all serial killers, yes. so I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, I know all killers are not psychopaths. Right, right. Um, serial killers, I don't know. 
potentially, but I, I, I really okay. couldn't speak to that. What are the questions that people should ask themselves if they think that they might be in a cult uh, or an abusive relationship? Because obviously there's a lot of uh, similarities between an abusive relationship and a, and a cult. Maybe you could talk about those similarities first and then the questions to, to ask yourself. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the main similarities is the, you know, what's now being called gaslighting, you know, basically making the, the person, the subject, the dominated one, making that person feel like it's all their fault. And, you know, they're not loving enough or they're not working hard enough, you know, if it's a cult situation or whatever it might be, they're not praising, you know, their partner enough or they're not folding the dish towels the right way or, you know, and, so and I think it's, it's, um, I think it's that kind of um, really making the person lose their sense of self and their self-confidence and their self-esteem. And, and to not happens. trust their instinct. Right. I think that happens in both contexts. Um, and the, and the kind of trauma and, um, you know, PTSD that people experience when they get out of those relationships, uh, whether it's a cultic or a, a, you know, domestic abusive situation. I think that the recovery issues, I think, are quite similar because in both situations, what's happening is that person is is taking apart you. You know, you're being broken down so that they can supposedly rebuild you in whatever image they see or whatever they want you to be. Um, and so the um, the traumatic effects of that, I think, are quite similar in both situations. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Shaw, uh, and his, his, uh, he's a, a therapist in New York and he wrote a book called traumatic narcissism. Um, and it's, I mean, while he does talk about cults, it's not solely about cults and he, he really, uh, makes it very clear this idea of, um, if you're, if you're involved with a narcissist, you know, especially one who's got very extreme tendencies, then um, you're, it's going to be a traumatic experience. I mean, that's why he calls it traumatic narcissism. I mean, you can't, you cannot have a normal relationship uh, with that type of person. One of the things that surprised me in the Nexium documentary was um, the, the fact that a lot of people that are drawn into cults didn't necessarily have bad childhoods there there wasn't some trauma that was being repeated which is so true often in uh other aspects of uh victimization yeah i yeah i think um no i think you're right about that i mean people who get recruited you know cults want to recruit high functioning a type personalities you know they want you to work for the cult they want you to recruit, keep it going, bring in your contacts, you know, everything that you can do to lend legitimacy to the group. Um, so they don't, they don't necessarily want troubled individuals. And certainly they love to have people with money right. <laughs> and good connections, you know, um, as we saw with the Dalai Lama example with uh, Nexium, um, which the Dalai Lama, by the way, was paid a million dollars to do that. But that's, you know, that's my saying, there are no gurus. But right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that, you know, I think all of us have 
things that we perhaps have self-doubt about or we have childhood or whatever memories that we may need to process or whatever. And then, you know, a, a cult like Nexium is absolutely going to prey on that and exaggerate that, you know, and that's why they did those, uh, what they called EMs, uh, which were, you know, in, very similar to what Scientology does of, um, you know, just burrowing into you and getting you to like completely become undone um, and examine, you know, some one thing to death. Um, and, and again, it's all about that there's something wrong with you. Psychopaths seem to have a sixth sense of what the person wants to hear or experience mm -hmm. and then constructing a reality to provide that for them and almost like judo using that energy to redirect it in a way that that serves them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah there i think um you know whether that's the 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 narcissistic quality or you know i think a lot of of psychopaths can be very charming and they're very excellent manipulators and so I think that's that's why it's sometimes easy for them to draw people toward them um, because they can come across as charming, although in general, their behavior is going to be very erratic. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing with in both domestic relationships and in cults, like when the leader is about to arrive or when the husband is about to come home or, you know, I don't want to always say it's men, but a lot it is. Um, you never know if it's going to be, you know, the good one or the bad one, you know, the one who's going to be nice to you or the monster who's going to like, like lit into you about something. So, um, yeah, but they seem to have this special ability to be, to read people um, and, and, and know what buttons to push. So talk about the questions to ask yourself if, if you are wondering if you are in a cult-like situation, whether it's just the person you're in a relationship with or a group that you're associating with? Well, I think, you know, hopefully people will ask themselves questions before they get involved. Um, but I think if once you're in and um, you see that there is no way to raise doubts or questions, um, that 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 that's always being uh, shut down or pushed back on you. I mean, it's certainly one thing. Um, if there's no transparency about financial issues, um, you know, that may be more relevant in a cult situation, but probably also in a relationship. Um, yeah, I'm think I'm thinking of when Keith Ranieri would always respond to what are you afraid of how he would mm -hmm. turn that back on on somebody. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um you know, if if people are walking around on eggshells and you know worried about what's going to happen next, um you know, if you're in a situation like that, it's you can pretty much assume it's it's not good for you. It's not healthy, and it it would behoove you to probably try to extricate yourself from that situation. Um, if you're the one who's always in the wrong, you know, if you're always completely doubting yourself, um, you know, th those should be signs. Although obviously, as we know, 
once people are involved in these situations, it, it, it gets extremely difficult to get out. A, a friend of mine had a first couple of dates with a guy that she was completely charmed by, but I, I said to her, really be careful with this guy because in their first dinner together, he was telling her about all the things that he's going to do for her and lavishing mm -hmm. her with praise. And that to me was a red flag because I always believe, look at people's actions rather than their words. And mm -hmm. there you will find their character. And this guy was canceling dates and, you know, uh, doing other things that, that were in contrast to the things that he was saying. Right. Right. I, I thought you were going to say he was, cutting her food for her or telling her what to order. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's that story uh, that a woman who dated Trump tells where she was at a dinner where Trump's father, it was at Trump's father's favorite steakhouse. And he said, uh, everyone should order the steak. It's this particular steak. It's so good. And the father said that or Trump? The father said that. Mm -hmm. And she uh, said, well, actually, I'd like to have this. And the father kind of, uh, you know, questioned her and pressed even harder. And Trump turned to her and said, just go along with it. It's a lot easier. Wow. And I thought that was very telling. Yeah. Yeah, apparently his father was a piece of work in himself. So not that that excuses anything, you know. So uh, talk some more about the, the questions uh, to ask yourself uh, and or the signs that you are in a relationship with uh, someone. Well, I think if there's... Um, you know, one thing is w what we call the punishment reward syndrome. Like if one day he treats you very badly and then, of course, then he comes home later with flowers and, you know, says he'll never do it again. I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the more obvious ways that we see this kind of behavior. Um, and, you know, also, I think another sign is, of course, trying to separate you from family and friends. Um, <clears throat> or your coworkers, you know, sometimes you may be told to leave your job or get a different job or something like that. Um, you know, when there's, when there's just these very obvious uh, ways that this person is trying to control you, control your life, um, that obviously, I think those should be warning signs um, that, often get dismissed because say, well, you know, as you were saying about your friend, you know, he's like just looking out for my best interest or he's, you know, he's really making suggestions that'll be better for me in the long run. And, and again, it just creates this self-doubt, self-doubt, self-doubt. So what are uh, some other signs that you might be in a, in a cult-like situation. If you can, if you can think of any on, on your website, there are 20 questions to uh, evaluate the validity or uh, of a group or a leader. There's a list of internal and external variables that may contribute to internal or external violence. 
Um, mm. Would you like to expand on either of those? Uh, sure. I mean, I think uh, in terms of violence, um, tr trying to find out about a person's background, the leader's background, if you can. Um, again, the, I mean, I know from my experience, you know, I believed everything I was told about my cult leader. And it wasn't until I got out and started to doing, doing research that I found out, you know, all this information that was very relevant to the situation we all found ourselves in and, and, and the type of leader that she was, you know, that she had tried to create these situations before that, you know, she, um, had people waiting on her before she was an alcoholic and, you know, supposedly had quit, but didn't. And, um, you know, she was denied tenure at two universities. I mean, so if you can find out about the background of the person, um, that, that usually can open up some doors in your mind about, Oh, this doesn't seem to match what I'm being told. Um, you know, cult leaders and I think narcissists in general in, in, in these relationships are, you know, they're, they're great myth makers. They like to make up stories about themselves and who they are and the things they've done. And so the, the more that you can check out those things, I think, um, could be helpful to kind of burst the bubble. Um, it, it, it seems like another sign is if the person often responds to something saying it's a witch hunt. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, everybody's going to be coming after us. Right. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that, that sort of uh, sense of persecution and paranoia, I mean, I think that's so common um, because it, it helps create what we call the us versus them mentality, right? Like we're, we're the special ones. We're just doing good stuff. And, you know, all these people out there are after us, you know, because we're whatever, you know, we're, we're renegades. We're, you know, we're um, just trying to better ourselves. And they're trying to say that we're just in love with this cult leader and they don't really see what's really going on. And so every, every cult, and I would imagine every uh, abuser in a relationship is going to do what we call damage control, right? They're going to ready you for those kind of uh, assaults that may happen on the outside so that you know how to handle them. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the, the paranoia and sense of persecution is sometimes completely mythical. I mean, nobody, you know, we, for example, again, I'll use my own experience. We were always told, you know, the FBI was after us and they were sending in infil infiltrators and nobody even knew we existed. I mean, I, when I got out again, we sent for the uh, freedom of information act files on her and it, it, there was nothing. I mean, it was like, you know, it was all just made up, but it had, but what it does is it puts you in this kind of state of anxiety, um, which again, makes you more vulnerable. And like, you're always, you know, you're, you're always worried. I mean, we used to have to guard our facilities, you know, people would sleep overnight in these various places that we had, like a print shop and different things, you know, because what if the FBI was going to come? And I remember whenever I was doing guard duty, I would think, well, what in the hell am I even going to do if the FBI comes? Like, what am I supposed to do? You know? <laughs> so I think, you know, just creating that sort of illusion of, of everybody's out to get us um, is definitely something to, to, to watch out for. One of the things that, that I find so interesting is that somebody can be 
both a victim and a victimizer at the same time. And the, mm-hmm. the Nexium documentary is such a great example of that because there are these people who got drawn into it, begin questioning it. And there was a part of them that was afraid to, to, to break loose, even as they were doing things that were against their own moral code. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, I think that's very common and that's, uh, that's one of the big issues in cult recovery, I think, is the is the guilt and shame of things you either did or participated in or witnessed and didn't do anything about. But, you know, what what cults do through the indoctrination process is they are essentially re-socializing you. Right. I don't like to use the term brainwashing because it's, it's such a buzzword and people don't really understand it. But basically what's happening is that your your worldview, your way that you're viewing not only the world, but yourself is being changed to fit whatever that particular leader wants, whatever that group wants you to be. And so within that, you begin to give up uh, bits of yourself. And one of the things you invariably will give up is, is your moral code, your sense of morality. And so that within the group, things that before would have been abhorrent to you become normalized. And that's certainly what Keith Raniere was doing um, and what happens in practically every cult. So that then if you're someone who, especially for those people who were in leadership or who were um, successful recruiters, um, you know, you're, you're basically complicit in creating and keep and keeping this system going. Uh, And so when people leave, it's it's often uh, one of the hardest things to reconcile within yourself. Like, how, I mean, how, how did I become that person? You know, I mean, I asked myself that a million times when I got out of my cult. Like, how, how did that? How did I become that? That was that's not who I want to be or who I was before. And so it's 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 a really difficult part of the recovery. Talk about uh, Nancy Salzman, who to me is as fascinating a figure as Keith Raniere. Um, Explain a little bit about her role in the Nexium cult. You know, her role was uh, she was a uh, some type of therapist. Um, She she practiced a lot of of, uh, NLP, neuro linguistic programming, uh, which is a a, a, a technique, I guess you would say, that you sort of mirror people and it, it's a way to draw them in. But, um, you know, she she obviously was enamored with Ranieri and she helped him create. Uh, she was able to um, really expand the recruitment. I mean, good God, she had her own daughter in the group, right? Right. I mean, you know, she she was, I mean, I, uh, all the people I've met from Nexium since, you know, since the, um, the article that came out in the New York times and then the trial, um, I, I, I haven't met anyone who really ever said a nice word about Nancy Salzman. I mean, she was, you know, she was the queen bee for a long time. And I, I do believe that the trial she tried to acknowledge the things that she did and some sense of remorse, but 
I, you know, who knows if that's real or not. I, I don't, I don't, I've never been able to meet with her personally, but, but she was the, you know, she was the right hand woman for a long time. And I, I wonder, did she get into a relationship with him? Was, was she really enamored with him or did she see him as a meal ticket to, you know, a, a grand life of power and control? I, you know, it was probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same with Claire Bronfman, you know, who gave bill millions of dollars, um, who still has not, as far as I know, still has not broken from the mindset that, you know, developed for her from Ranieri. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know. I think, you know, I mean, there are sometimes secondary leaders within the groups who also are a little bit of a psychopath, you know, and they do find their niche uh, within the group. And, and, and that could be, that could be true for Nancy Salzman. So there is a continuum, not necessarily a, a light switch on or off for psychopathy. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Have you ever read the book um, Without Conscience? Yes. Oh, yes. Is that a book that I, I was fascinated by? It's one yeah. of the most interesting reads. Uh, and it came out a while ago. It came out in the early 90s, I think. Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I have it right here. In fact, that that's the book we referenced um, when I was writing Take Back Your Life. And as I said earlier, putting in the, <coughs> I'm sorry, the characteristics of Robert Hare's uh, checklist. Um, but yeah, that that's a, a wonderful book and I, you don't hear much about it anymore, but it's certainly one that should be on a resource list. <laughs> uh, I believe it's the book, The Psychopath Whisperer. I, I could be wrong, but he, he was a student who worked with uh, Robert Hare and then he worked in prisons for a while and he was mm -hmm. able to test a lot of the prisoners and one of the things that he believed was that there was some type of language issue with psychopaths. And they did MRIs where they, they discovered that whereas the average person's language skills and the production of language was limited to one hemisphere of the brain with psychopaths, both hemispheres of the brain were at work. And that, that, is, that is why when a lot of them are talking, there are a lot of hand gestures as they uh, search for the words because their processing takes a little bit longer, which I found fascinating. And, you know, according to this guy, the details of the tests, you know, bore it out. And that was a big, a big victory for, for him. Any thoughts on that? No, but that sounds really interesting. I actually have that book and I have to confess I never read it and now I'm going to want to read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that that sounds really interesting. Um, and it, it maybe has to do with with why so many of them uh, speak what I call gobbledygook. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. half the time you don't know what they're talking about. Um, uh, 
But they will or, contradict themselves often within you right. know, the, was, uh, a follow, the following sentence. Exactly. I was going to mention Trump again. I mean, it's like when he would and he would jump from one thing to the next and just completely lose his train of thought. And um, yeah, they should give him an MRI. <laughs> and, and maybe, how, when, maybe when he's locked up, they'll be able to. <laughs> People who have ADD obviously would show some of, uh, you know, the similar struggles with keeping a train of thought in, in, in jumping around. Uh, I just want to clarify that, that that's something that is com- completely different than what we're yes. talking about. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> My uh, uh, the people that listen to this show uh, very often are looking for ammo to beat themselves up. And so I, mm-hmm. wherever possible, I like to try Clear. to head that off at the, at the pass yeah. if I can. Yeah. Uh, anything else that you'd like to share for somebody who is in an abusive relationship or feels like there's something going on that just doesn't feel right to them? Well, I, you know, I just think the the most important thing, which I know is hard when you're in those situations, is to trust your gut. You know, if if it's not right, if it's not feeling right, and if you're being constantly hurt, and you're being told it's your fault, um, and you're the one who has to make changes, I think really, really, really try to do whatever you can to get out of that situation, and 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 seek help. Um, and that's what, that's why I always tell people, you know, I get, I get contacted by a lot of people who have someone in a cult, right? A friend, a loved one, whatever. And I always tell them, just leave the door open. Don't ever break contact, you know, let them know that you're a safe haven because one of the hardest things anyone ever is going to do is leave a cult or leave an abusive relationship. It's so damn difficult, but if you, know there's someplace to go where you'll be sheltered and where you won't be made fun of. And somebody isn't going to say, see, I told you so. Right. Right. Um, That you, you know, be that safe haven for somebody is so important um, because taking that step out is really, really bloody scary. Yeah. Yanya, thanks uh, so much for not only the the work you do, but for making time and, uh, coming on the podcast. I was super excited to have you on and I am not disappointed. Well, thank you. And I, I really uh, enjoyed it as well because it, it, we weren't talking about the same old things. I really enjoyed that. Oh, you, good. Yeah. That you raised some new issues and new topics. Um, so, that, you know, that was a pleasant surprise for me. Oh, good. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and if people want to know more about you or, uh, contact you, uh, any social media or websites you want to plug? Yeah, I would say the, probably the best way is my, we- my website, which is, uh, just cultresearch.org, all one word, cultresearch.org. Uh, there's a lot of information there and articles and such. And there's also a way to e- email me through the website, uh, that it will come to me. So if, if people want to contact me, there's always that. And of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and trying to learn Instagram, which has completely boggled my mind. <laughs> but <laughs> and, and you have a couple of books out there that people uh, might uh, yes. read. Yeah, I have four or five books, uh, Take Back Your Life, Bounded Choice, 
uh, Escaping Utopia, which is uh, about children who were born or raised in a cult. Um, again, the, those would all be on my website and they're all available at Amazon. Right. So, Dr. Lalich, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm glad we finally got this to happen. Love talking to her. Definitely want to have her back on the show. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Um, before we take it out with some surveys, I want to ask you guys if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, and I know you're tired of all of the podcasts and the YouTube channels, hey, please hit subscribe. Please hit subscribe. Uh, it helps helps increase the downloads and that helps bring advertisers uh, because we do go through periods on the podcast when there isn't a lot of advertising and I get a little freaked out. All right. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself See You in the Pit and he writes, I've always wondered uh, why people in support groups don't tend to say which specific support group they are in. Just wondering what your reasoning for it is. And the reasoning, I can't speak for everybody else, but my reasoning for it is um, some of the support groups I go to, there is a tradition of uh, not identifying yourself as a member of the support group uh, in the public media. Uh, so I, I, mentioned, I mentioned the name of it when I'm um, with a person or a group of people, but I don't name the specific names of it when I'm on social media or doing the podcast or, or at a movie premiere. I don't know if I've ever been to a movie premiere, but I have worn a, a black tie and, uh, walked down a red carpet. Actually, I, I was, uh, <laughs> years ago, when I was doing dinner in a movie, I was, uh, nominated for, uh, best host for uh, these cable awards called the Cable Ace Awards. They eventually put them 
out of their misery. I think the year that I got nominated was the the last year that they did it. I, I think we were the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I did not win. and uh, But walking down the red carpet and people are taking your picture. And, and I know 99% of those people had no fucking idea who I was. But I felt like a big shot. And uh, <laughs> the Cable Ace Awards. Anybody old enough to remember those? This is from the Fears survey filled out by Chris, and he writes, I've been depressed my entire adult life so far, and I'm terrified I'll be miserable until the day I die, that I'll sit on my deathbed and think, wow, what a waste of time. I could have experienced the universe in so many transformative and beautiful ways, and I just didn't, or couldn't figure out how, because I was so helpless in trying to figure out exactly what was wrong in my life and what I had to do to fix it. I feel like my time is slipping away, and all I can do is watch. Wow, thank you for that, Chris. I think so many of us are like, oh my God, yes. Oh my God, there's that line in that Pink Floyd song, Time, where it uh, it says, a fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. And um, I forget exactly how the other line goes, but it, essentially you blink and a decade has passed you by and you feel like you've done nothing. I experienced that. Um, it's not that I feel like I've done nothing. It's that I feel like I haven't reached my potential and that I've just wasted portions of my life and then shame comes in and uh and isn't that what life is all about just uh enduring shame until you close your eyes this is also from the fear survey filled out by codependent mammy and she writes i fear that i am plagued to spend the rest of my life attracting and being attracted to highly toxic people and having really horrible intense relationships i fear that my standards of just being with a guy who doesn't hit me or steals from me but pushing and emotional stuff is fine will never get higher i fear that if this comes true the rest of my life, I will be practicing harm minimization and safety planning with someone I am too afraid to leave instead of leading a happy life with someone I love. I fear that one day I will get into a relationship with someone who kills me. And if it came true, everyone would just be at my funeral to say, I told you so. Holy shit, is that dark? And thank you for sharing that. Um, I know a lot of people that are stuck in the cycle of toxic relationships, especially romantic ones. And people who who don't experience that uh, have a hard time wrapping their head around how somebody can do that. But there there are many things that happen with people who were raised in toxic, unsafe environments. They become used to the chaos, the drama, and it feel, feels familiar in a partner and there is a certain I don't know comfort in that because they know the script it's a play that they've seen a thousand times you know and it takes an unwiring of the brain a processing of trauma to undo that attraction to toxic people um and a lot of it starts with practicing self-care because once you start caring for yourself, the contrast of somebody 
treating you abusively really stands out and your tolerance for it really goes down. So that that can help kind of connect the intellectual part of your brain that knows you're in an unhealthy relationship to the emotional part of your brain that is still getting something uh, out of it. I hope that makes sense. And if not, I actually welcome you to sue me. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself I Got You. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes at about 8 or 9, my best friend who was 10 or 11 was having me strip and then rubbing all over. Uh, She's never been physically abused or emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with the abuser? She moved and I never saw her until Facebook came and I didn't respond. Darkest thoughts? I want to have sex with lots of people. Darkest secrets? I've been sleeping with my boss. Um, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Pull my hair and fuck me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd say that I'm tired of this situation because I feel stuck. What, if anything, do you wish for to be able to enjoy relationships? Have you shared these things with others? No, because when you say it out loud, it's real. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kinda. No other words, just kinda. Uh, Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I can't say because I'm still stuck in it. Thank you for sharing all of that stuff. And, you know, a lot of the things that you are struggling with are signs of somebody who has experienced uh, physical, or I'm sorry, uh, sexual abuse, Uh, difficulty in intimate relationships, uh, promiscuity, um, you know, not that having sex with different people is a morally bad choice, but when it's a reaction to feelings we don't want to process, it's it's different than going out and, you know, the the intent is different between somebody who is being promiscuous because they are dealing with trauma versus somebody who uh, has a a healthy perspective on what they want from sex, uh, who has boundaries, uh, who can be vulnerable. I don't know if that makes sense. But I think it would be really beneficial to you um, you know, uh, you write, I've been sleeping with my boss. Um, you know, one of the things when when people have experienced unwanted sexual contact, uh, we have a really, really hard time setting boundaries and identifying what is safe or healthy for us. We we tend to look for the things that give us shots of adrenaline. And sometimes those are things that are, um, you know, can affect our professional lives or our personal lives or just how we feel about ourselves. And oftentimes the, the answer is to process that stuff that helped, happened to us years and years ago. So 
Just throwing that out there. The interview with Matt Haig last week, I had written a list of uh, reasons to stay alive that I was going to share with him. And I guess they're kind of uh, similar to the love survey, but I thought, uh, well, let's let's share them since I didn't get a chance to do it last week. Uh, I love laughing during sex. Watching a documentary series that's so good, you know, it's the only thing you're going to be doing until it's done. Uh, the feeling after you floss and you feel like less of a fuck-up. A new pair of shoes that make you excited to actually leave the house. When someone lets go of pain they've been holding for years and trusts you enough to cry in front of you. When dogs let you hold them like a baby and bonus points if they fall asleep. And an author who makes you feel like they get you. I just finished a book about the making of the TV show, The Wire. If you have never seen the HBO show, The Wire, it is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, dramatic series ever on television. Um, I, I don't even want to try to explain what it's all about, but it is, uh, it's so detailed. It's so well-researched. It's so human. Uh, yeah, check it out. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Stevie. He identifies as straight. He is in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was about seven years old at the time. A family friend's son, uh, who was 16, would suck my dick and make me suck his dick. This happened a couple of times. Um, I remember him one time, sorry, this is a bit graphic, spreading his ass cheeks and telling me to put my penis in his asshole. I wouldn't do it for one, I didn't have a boner, and two, poop comes out of there. I never told anyone about this, and I still talk to the guy who did this. I don't think he realizes I remember everything vividly. I don't think I will ever talk to him about it or tell a soul besides this survey. Even though I was a young boy, I knew that what was happening was wrong. He's been physically and emotionally abused. My father was a mean alcoholic. One night, my mother and father were fighting. It happened often, but this night, my father had pushed my mother. I stood in between them to protect her. Ever since then, he would take his anger out on me, verbal and physical. I got the blunt of his anger from around six years old till age 15. When I got bigger, I fought back. I got my ass hurt, but after I blasted him in the face, he stopped hitting me in the face. Still more verbal abuse, though. At age 21, I beat the shit out of my father. He called the cops, and I did a month in jail. 28 now. My father is six years sober, and we have an okay relationship. Wow, that is intense. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Uh, positive? I don't take any shit from people. I will never let anyone abuse me physically or emotionally. It's actually made me a more compassionate person towards others and huge respect towards women. Darkest thoughts? I would have daydreams about dragging my ex-girlfriend by the hair, filling up the bathtub, and holding her head under the water, feeling the panic through my arms. These thoughts would come on when we would argue. 
She was a crazy bitch, like for real. We dated for almost a year. I have never hit a woman and never will. She was the only woman who would drive me absolutely fucking insane to the point I would not only daydream but fantasize about drowning her. Wow, that is that is intense. That is intense, and I'm glad that it's uh, it's just staying in your in your head. And you know, I I think that these are good examples of of how there can be a huge difference between what's going on in our head and the actions that we take. You know, a, a lot of people go through life giving in to the actions that are going on in their head. Um, uh, but for a, a lot of people also, they, they're they able to keep their actions at bay, uh, even though their head is saying, you know, slap this person or do this or that. And um, I think it's it's important for us to not feel shame about what we're thinking or the feelings that are coursing through our veins, but to focus on what tool we're going to grab to to deal with what we're feeling. You know, you're going to journal, you're going to call a friend, you're going to talk to your therapist. Uh, Darkest Secrets. 13 years old, I snuck out of my house and attended Monster Massive in L.A., a Halloween rave. I ate an eighth of magic mushrooms, fully tripping my ass off on the dance floor. This big man behind me grabbed my waist, thrusting his cock uh, on my ass. Freaking out, I told him to stop. He would not let me go. Thinking this guy is trying to rape me, I pulled out my knife. Um, parentheses, I've always carried a knife on me since I was 11 and still carry one to this day. I stabbed this guy three times in his side, hard and fast. I pushed my way through the crowd and got the hell out of there. I didn't know if I was just tripping from the mushrooms or if it really happened. I had blood on my hands and my knife. I still have the knife with dried blood on it. Wow. Wow, and you were fucking 13. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Fantasies of an almost satanic woman having her way with me. Smoky room, red lighting, pentagrams, black candles, very evil yet sexual setting. Me tied up and this woman fucking my brains out. She's not hurting me but close to it. This is an erotic taboo for me because my mother raised my sister and I in a very Christian setting as kids. If you ever watched the movie The Doors with Val Kilmer, the scene where he drinks blood and fucks that crazy chick, kind of like that, LOL. What, if anything, you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to know why this family friend molested me when I was a child. He was 16 and I was 7. I lost my virginity at 15 with a woman. Never been with a guy, not my preference. I would never ever want to fuck around with a little boy. I think it's fucking disgusting. I would kill and gladly go to prison if someone ever molested my children, even though I don't have any kids yet. I have zero sympathy towards men who fondle little kids and think prison is too light of punishment. I want to know why he did that to me. Did that happen to him as a child? This person is married with two two children, a five-year-old son and a one-year-old girl. I wonder what he would think if some 16-year-old boy was making his son suck his dick. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I would have chosen to stay with my ex-girlfriend of four years. Going on six years ago, she gave me an ultimatum, her or drugs. I chose drugs without any hesitation. She took off the engagement ring I bought her, gave it to me, and walked away. I threw away a wonderful woman for heroin. 
I kick myself every day for making such a stupid fucking decision. She is now married to someone else, and she honestly looks happy. It breaks my heart, and I am still shooting heroin. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. That is the first thing to deal with. Because there is no emotional growth while we're getting fucked up. You know, in an addict, in an addictive way, because that's that's our tool, and it's a blunt tool that might have saved our lives at some point, um, but it stops working for us, and it starts to it starts to. I mean, you know, you've seen the bottoms that people have on heroin, but I guess what I wanted to say was, if you if you want to get your life together, that is the place to start. Um, it seems obvious, but for a lot of people, they they want to keep numbing themselves with their drug of choice, whether it's you know compulsive shopping or sex or heroin or alcohol. That's that's the place, so you can deal with reality. Have you shared these things with others? No, I've never shared anything I've stated. I guess the reason is embarrassment, shame, guilt. I already feel those, and I don't want others to view me in that way either. How do you feel after writing these things down? Honestly, I feel like weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I don't know who will read this, but whoever does, I hope you realize I have never told anyone anything I've written, and most likely never will. Oh man, thank you for that. Thank you. Wow. It went deep. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Dr. Google's assistant. And she writes, thinking back when my mom said, I'm not like one of those parents who just shows up unannounced. And remembering how she used to drive by my adult sister's house to see if they were where they said they were. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out. <laughs> this name kills me. Filled out by a woman who calls herself the Statue of Liberace. And she writes, I don't know how funny this is, but the irony of it really stings. One time in college, I went home for the holidays and met up with some old friends. One of these friends had recently lost about 80 pounds and suddenly looked like a supermodel. We all took a photo, and once it was posted online, I beat myself up for months over how fat I looked compared to all my skinny, runway-ready friends. I was of an average, totally okay weight, but couldn't see it at the time. I hated myself for not having the discipline that one friend had had and vowed to start a strict diet. Didn't go well and ended up looking a lot more like anorexia. Fast forward eight years and this one friend who had lost all that weight just told me she'd gained all her weight back and her, quote, miracle weight loss only happened because she was bulimic and had to go to the hospital many, many times. Another one of my, quote, thin friends in that photo recently confessed that she had been bulimic too. Now we're all plumper, healthier, more confident, and more importantly, happier. We're happy, and we're honest with each other, and we're all closer for it. That's what life is about, not how you, quote, size up to your friends in group photos. I wish I'd known that back then. 
thank you for that. That I love whenever I read something about somebody getting to a place where they're more comfortable in their in their own skin and uh it's so hard to get to that place. It's so hard. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this one's pretty intense. This was filled out by a trans woman who calls herself Josephine Stallion. Uh, she identifies as gay, uh, is in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My dad raped me when I was seven. I don't know what else to say on that matter, but it left me feeling confused and tainted for years, and I still sometimes fall into a dark pit when I remember the fact that the person who took my virginity was my dad. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. I have a lot of complicated feelings about my dad, even though he did traumatize me and ruin my childhood. Mental illness and addiction runs in his part of the family, and he was an alcoholic with borderline personality disorder and bipolar, and then parentheses, the holy trinity, exclamation point. I don't know how my dad actually looked at me, but the way he responded to his intense emotions made it seem like he fucking hated me. Whenever he was pissed about something very minor I did or didn't do, he would beat me, make me eat dog food, starve me for the day, or lock me outside or in the garage for a few hours or until my mom got home from work. If I was lucky, all he would do is yell at me about how I'm a failed abortion and the number two thing that ruined his life. Number one was, quote, my fat whore mom. My grandparents eventually rescued me from that home and I went to go live with them from when I was 10 to when I graduated from high school. The years of abuse I endured fucked up my development big time. And even now at 22, my inner voice isn't mine. It's his. I've been in therapy for about five years now and even though the change has been gradual, I'm staying hopeful that I'll conquer my trauma and take back the control he has over every aspect of my life. Darkest thoughts. I never got a diagnosis related to this, but I deal heavily with obsessive thoughts. It's at its worst when I'm in a relationship because on a lot of nights, a thought of, oh shit, what if I snapped her neck, would come out of nowhere and throw me into a panic so bad that on a lot of nights, I would end up sleeping on the couch. When I'm driving, I'll have thoughts of, okay, so what if I take the next exit ramp, but don't slow down and just crash my car into the first thing that comes up? Wouldn't that be wild? I have to avoid rooftops because I always think about just jumping, even though I'm mostly not suicidal. The worst part, after the thought happens, it feels like I've just done the horrible thing I'm thinking about, and I break down and start crying. I still haven't shared these thoughts with anyone because I'm terrified of someone thinking I'm a psychopath and calling the police. Honestly, even I get worried that I'm going crazy and I'll actually end up doing those things. Uh, you should listen to, first of all, thank you for sharing all that, and you should check out the uh, interviews that I've done with uh, Kimberly Quinlan. She specializes in OCD, and I think you would find a lot of information and a lot of comfort in uh, what she shares about OCD, uh, especially Pure O, which is just the obsessive uh, thought. 
Darkest Secrets. I started a GoFundMe to help me make rent uh, one month a few years ago, something I did actually need, and I end up using the whole $200 fueling my drug and alcohol addiction. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. All of my sexual fantasies involve people hurting me the way my dad did. The things that traumatized me at the same time make me extremely horny. And that is so common, and so many people feel shame about about that. And, you know, as long as you're not hurting someone, or as long as it's, it's not eating into other parts of your life, um, have some compassion for yourself. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my dad to go fuck himself. It's simple, but I feel like telling him that to his face is enough to give me the closure I need. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could stop rejecting myself like my dad re- uh, like my dad rejected me. Um, have you shared these things with others? Stuff about my dad, yes. About my obsessions, no. How do you feel after writing these things down? A whole lot better. Even though as I'm typing this, I'm crying the hardest I've cried in three months. Oh, man. Thank you for that. That is uh, that is a lot of shit for a human being to endure. But it's so good that you're you're in therapy and you're on your road to to working through this stuff. And I'm gonna read some more of the reasons to live slash uh, loves. <laughs> Crazy! What was that noise? Oh, she wants to go for a. She wants to go for a skate. Uh, I love the first day of fall when the temperature drops into the low 60s. And even though you know your fall depression is en route, you get to wear your favorite jacket, sweater, or sweatshirt, and the air smells different. Love when I'm laying down and feeling a little depressed and my dog lays her chin on my face and we can hear each other breathe. I love a smoothie that's healthy but doesn't taste like it. I love when I'm having trouble getting out of bed and I text my girlfriend who's in the backyard or another room and she comes in and lays down with me and makes the world seem less overwhelming. I love watching a little dog try to fuck a big dog. I love how you can't help but laugh when you jump into a cold ocean and the waves are just a little bit scary and for a moment you feel like you're living life how it's supposed to be done. I love being in a new city and finding a place that makes great coffee and knowing every morning I'll get to have that. I love having my hockey team over for a barbecue and talking about hockey in a way that non-players wouldn't understand and also making fun of the guys that take selfishly long shifts, don't pass, or or don't help out on defense. I love watching little kids' faces when they realize something that amazes them or makes them laugh. I love passing by a beautiful beautiful piece of land with cows grazing on it and knowing that part of why it's so beautiful is that the cows keep the grass short and fertilized. I love walk, watching an orchid you think you killed come back to life over a year later. I love running your hands over a piece of furniture sh- someone shaped by hand, knowing it couldn't have been made just by a machine. I love when you peel a banana and it's the perfect ripeness. I love seeing food finally arriving. 
and I love being in the backyard and hearing my girlfriend chopping onions for the guacamole she makes me every week. I hope you like those. And then finally, this is a awfulsome moment. I think it could be a happy moment, though. Filled out by Trophy Dog Mom, and she writes, After working with my therapist on pro- processing my PTSD from being cornered by my abuser for many sessions, I was ready to follow my body's desire to complete the fight-or-flight motion and the actual trauma my body was forced to freeze. And the PTSD came from being unable to fight or flight. In his office, I stood up and bolted the way I had always wanted to be able to do. It was the most painful experience having to relive the trauma, but I took a huge gasp of air and broke down into tears. It was like I had been holding my breath for years, and I was finally able to breathe again. Love it. Love it. Well, I... uh I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I loved talking to uh, Yanya Lalich. I'm so fascinated by cults and psychopaths. I never get tired. You know what? Maybe I should start my own cult. And then I would always be able to be around the subject matter. I am way too lazy to start my own cult. Unless the cult was the cult of sleeping during the afternoon. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our episode and if you're out there and you're struggling just remember you are not alone and thanks for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up I know in some weird way bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely